If you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Psalm 9. Uh, today, this morning, will be our, our last in our series on the Psalms. We'll pick up the Psalter at a later point in our life as a church. But we wanted to do some, a, a section of, of the Psalms uh, during the fall. And next week, we will, and the following, we'll look at some more Christmas-oriented, Advent-oriented texts. Um, last year, I did like five or six uh, messages leading up to uh, Christmas on Luke 1 and 2. So we had like over, overload, uh, if you can say that reverentially, of, of like Christmas passages. This year, just two. Next week and the following, um, pastor friend of mine once preached on the Witch of Endor on Christmas uh, Sunday. And uh, his wife pulled him aside and said, you're not, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> like, what do you think? He's like, you know, he's like, oh, John Calvin preached verse by verse. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay, but you're not going to do that. You know, <laughs> we're going to do Christmas message. Here, so. so don't worry, Christmas message are coming. So to, to uh, the next two weeks. Um, but for now, Psalm 9 is where we find ourselves as we have been looking at these first nine psalms. So follow along as I read Psalm 9. To the choir master, According to Muthlaben, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. I will recount all your wondrous, wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When, the enemies, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For who... For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. Then in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their hands. Higion Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol and all nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Yahweh, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh, 
Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Imagine if someone came to visit our church and they had done a little research and they got on our website and they learned that our name was Emmanuel Bible Church and that we were committed to preaching the Bible. And so they came into the service and they sat down and they began to uh, hear some announcements and they began to uh, hear scripture read and they heard uh, some prayers and some songs sung and then we began uh, the offering and we sang another song. And at this point, this person just couldn't take it any longer. And so they stand up and they say, what's wrong with you people? Like R.C. Sproul, but, and they said, I thought you were a Bible preaching church, a Bible teaching church. I haven't had, heard any preaching yet in this service. Do you guys even preach the Bible? And we may respond with, just wait, it's coming. <laughs> the preaching is coming. In fact, look at the order of service. It's next. It's right about to happen. And that might be kind of a silly illustration that would, unlikely, would not likely take place. And yet, that's somewhat of a helpful illustration for what's happening in Psalm chapter 9, and especially on a larger scale, when people think about the justice of God and God's judgment of the wicked. They might say something like, they see uh, that the scriptures say God is a righteous judge, that God is holy and just, and, he, and there's uh, no evil in him. And yet they look around at the world and they see injustice taking place, they see sin, they see people calling good evil and evil good and mixing things up and, and the wicked getting away with things that they ought not to. And then we say, wait a minute, I thought your God was a God of justice. I thought your God was righteous. Isn't he going to bring these people to account? And in a similar way, we might respond with, just wait, it's coming. Read the order of service, <laughs> read the scriptures. There is a judgment coming. God by no means will clear the guilty. God will bring justice and it will come but you must wait for it. And that is not only a message that the world needs to hear, the world being unbelievers, but also that believers need to be encouraged with, that when we face personal injustices, we need to hear there's judgment coming. God will right all wrongs. And even maybe not a personal uh, injustice you've experienced, but maybe you look out at the world and you see uh, world injustices and, and people that are, are, you hear stories and you think, how can this go on? And you can look to the word of God and the ways of God and know that he has promised and will bring to pass a just judgment. And that's really what David banks on in Psalm chapter nine. Though he lives, and we do as well, in a world of injustice, nevertheless, David knows God will bring justice in the end. And so here's a psalm for our time, a psalm that longs for God's kingdom to fully manifest itself on the earth. Now, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 have been thought by some to be one psalm. Um, 
There is actually a acrostic, it's kind of a broken acrostic in Hebrew. So Psalm 119 is the most famous acrostic. It actually has uh, 22 different distinct stanzas and there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so each section is the next letter. So it's like Aleph, and there's, that's like, you know, I forget how many verses it is, but let's just say it's like four, you know. There's those verses for Aleph, and they all start with A, right, or Aleph. <laughs> uh, and then Baith, and then the Gimel section, and then Daleth, and hey, wow, Zion. And, and it continues to go on throughout the Hebrew alphabet and all the way to the end. And so, it is an acrostic, and it's for memory devices. It's for maybe for a number of different reasons. This is kind of a broken acrostic. There's another one in Lamentations. Um, it doesn't follow exactly. There's some like letters missing and some others out of order. It's like, did this person know the alphabet? <laughs> but, but there is somewhat of a connection, and um, uh, the um, certain translations have put these together as one. I think the Catholic Bible does that. But there's other reasons uh, to maybe see them separately. Um, and to not wade into the debate, I think it is still, uh, if they're one, there's a lot to look at in these two Psalms, and you, you can look at them separately. But I, I think they, there's good reason as well to see them with distinct messages that they have uh, for us. And so we're just going to look at Psalm 9 uh, this morning, because that's what we read. But I just wanted you to know that, uh, that, that, that there are somewhat of a, a history there between these two. The psalm begins in an interesting way. It says, to the choir master, according to, and we have this new phrase, Muth Laban. So what is that? Well, uh, some, the ESV has a footnote, and it says, probably a musical or liturgical term. It's like, okay, thanks, but what? You know, well, we don't know. Um, some think that the translation of it could be death of a son, to, to death of a son. So it would be like a tune that you would sing um, to this particular, uh, uh, the song would be sung to this particular tune. And some have sought to connect this to Absalom. So David is the author. If it's death of a son, his son Absalom dies. And some want to make a case that Psalms 1 to 9 are actually describing the time period, or sorry, Psalms 3 to 9 are describing the time period when David is fleeing Absalom and he's writing these psalms. And there's a case that could be made for that because Psalm 3 begins with a superscription telling us the context is David fleeing from his son Absalom. And there's different themes that run through these psalms that do connect that. So that's a very possible way to look at these. That these first uh, three to nine are psalms dealing with that. And so that's a possible illusion. However, it's hard to be really dogmatic about that. Um, either way, there are allusions that you can make to that. But I think it could stand alone and, and relate to other areas of David's life as well. So take it or leave it. Uh, that's the best I got for Muth Laban. Okay. On to the, the main teaching of the text, though. And here's how I want to uh, present this to you, which I believe is faithful to what this text is getting at as we bring it forward into the 21st century, is how do you maintain sanity in a sinful world? How do you maintain sanity in a sinful world? And I think David is going to help us uh, to model that for us. So as we look through this text... Um, you could divide it in two ways. Verses 1 to 12 is really a, um, uh, a praise to, to Yahweh. And then verses 13 to 20 is a plea to Yahweh. Uh, but I want to look at it uh, a little bit 
uh, in some more detail in three different ways. And so we want to see three reminders for maintaining sanity in a sinful world. Three reminders that you need to maintain your sanity in a sinful world. The first reminder is you need the reminder to resolve to praise God. The resolve to praise God or to worship God in verses 1 and 2. Look again at verse 1 and 2. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. I will recount all your, all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When the world acts like the world, we worship the Lord. David is experiencing opposition once again, and yet here he finds himself worshiping, or we find him worshiping yet again. And he gives us a number of great lessons here that could easily be missed uh, about worship and about praise. Notice a few of these. Notice his commitment to worship. And that's seen in the repetition four times of this phrase, I will. I will. David has a resolve to worship, a commitment, a determination that he is going to worship no matter what. It's usually not difficult to give thanks, praise, be happy when things are going great circumstantially. But that is not the case for David here. David is facing opposition. And yet, he says, I will. I will. He's committed. What a great lesson for us to remember that we need to commit ourselves to worship God regardless of our present circumstances, whether they be favorable or not. Because we are not primarily worshiping God because he gives us good circumstances, but we are primarily worshiping God because he is God, because of who he is. And so that is what David is committed to. It reminds me of Paul. Paul is in prison and he's praising God while he's in prison. But not only that, uh, you know, that in Acts 16, which provokes the question, you know, how, what must I do to be saved? You know, what is going on with these guys? But then Paul writes the book of Philippians while he's on house arrest, and it's the book of joy. It's like unity and joy are the main themes of this book, and, and he's writing from prison. Incredible. He, he, he finds his joy in, in God and in Christ. And so, this is the commitment David has to praise. We too must resolve to praise no matter what, no matter the circumstances. Are you going to resolve to worship God even if circumstances are difficult? And refrain from and mortify the temptation to grumble, to complain. Why would he do this? Well, because God is worthy. And Job had such a commitment in his life to worship no matter what. Job was like the richest guy in his area. Job provided lots of jobs for lots of people in his region. So when Job went down, so to speak, a lot of people were also affected by that. Job was like one of the wealthiest people in that time. And yet he was one of the most godly people at the same time during this time in ancient history. And yet, as he loses everything virtually, he says this. 
Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Blessed be his name, his character, who he is. Notice what Job is doing. He's looking beyond his circumstances to the consistent and reliable character of God, his name, who he is. It's not easy, but he nevertheless is committed to worship no matter what. And, and this naturally leads us to another lesson about worship in these first two verses, and is the object of our worship. Right? If, if it's not primarily that when we, we're going to commit to worship because of our circumstances, but rather because of our God, then it, it, it automatically answers the question, what is the object of our worship? It is God. David identifies the object in two ways. He, he says the Lord or, or Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And then he says, O Most High, at the end of verse 2. David knows that he must worship the right God in the right way. And so David knows he cannot worship some generic God and fill in the blanks, but he must worship the true God. And look just ahead at verse 10. He says, those who know your name put their trust in you. In other words, those who know who you truly are are most inclined to put their trust in you. Why would that be? Well, because the true God elicits awe and worship. He's irresistible. The true God shows himself to be reliable and worthy of our trust. And so we are more apt to put our trust in him. God determines the way we think about him, the way we conceive of him, and David knows that. When you know the name of your God, you're compelled to worship him. And so David has the right object of worship. And notice then another lesson, and it's the expressions of his worship. The expressions of his worship. Five different ways David describes his worship. He says, I will give thanks, I will recount, I will be glad, I will exalt, and I will sing praise. And to be sure, there are more expressions of worship than that, but uh, like, like lament, we've already seen in the Psalms, but what a great uh, variety of expressions that David gives to his worship. As we come to the end of another year, it's always good to just set aside some time and recount to yourself the works of God. And you could do this in two categories. You could think of the wonderful works of God in redemptive history, like before you were born, what God has done through history. So creation and his providence and the Bible stories and, and the cross and the resurrection and all these things. And then your personal history. Like what has God done this year in your life that you could give thanks for and, and, and recount God's works? Like actually recount them. And because that is what will elicit our joy in God by reminding ourselves of the works of God and the ways of God. And so let me encourage you in that way as a way to apply this even. Very simple and yet so helpful for us. And one of the qualities of those who do not know God in Romans 1 is, you know, very interesting. He says, they do not give thanks to God. They are thankless. That is one of the things that describes those in Romans 1. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to give thanks in all circumstances because this is God's will for you. 
And David also tells us of the devotion of worship. The devotion of worship. He says, I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. With my whole heart. The heart for the Hebrews is the real you. It's mission control center. It's where thinking occurred. It's where values were placed. It's where you treasure things and despise other things. It is the place of contemplation, uh, where intentions lie, where purposing takes place. David worship, David's worship was not half-hearted. It was whole-hearted. He wasn't going through the motions. One writer said this, the heart is the instrument of praise. The mouth is only its organ. The heart is the instrument. The mouth is only its organ. It reminds me of Luke chapter 7. This woman comes as Jesus is having dinner at the religious leader's house and she comes in and she wants to show her love for and devotion to Christ having been forgiven of her sins and she brings this incredibly expensive uh, perfume and, and breaks it and pours it on his feet and anoints his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. It's this in, in lavish, incredibly awkward situation for most who were there. And at the end of that, Jesus points out that she loved so much because she had for, been forgiven so much. And it's not so much that Jesus was saying, if you have done a lot of sin, you've got a lot more potential to love God, right? Because you've been forgiven more. No, he's saying to the degree that you understand how much God forgave you, how sinful you were, to that degree, you will rise in your love and your worship for God. And so that's what David is really calling us to is this gratitude, this thankfulness to work. That's how we worship with our whole heart. Like, let me just point something out to you uh, that someone pointed out before to me. It's helpful when you think about God's law and then the motivation for that, right? Because it's like, here's a command for you. Give thanks. Why do you want to do that? Because of who God is, because what God has done. And so think about like the law of God is like the GPS. It tells you like, here's the direction you need to go, but you need an engine in your car to get there, right? The, the grace, the gospel is the engine that motivates you to say, I want to, I want to go, you know, and then the GPS directs you to, to where to go. The GPS doesn't move your car, it's the engine. And, and so the command is give thanks, it's recount, it's to worship, but the reason we worship, the, the engine behind our worship is who God is and what he has done for us. And so as we contemplate those things, it, it's like turning the engine on. It's like, and, 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 uh, and, and firing it up so that you then have the, uh, the, the desire to worship and go in the right direction. So this is the devotion of worship. And then the basis, we've already said this really, but it's two things. In verse two, he says, the base of his worship is your name, God, and then verse one is your wonderful deeds. So, so who God is and what God has done. That is the, the basis of his worship. That's the engine of it. As he thinks about God and his nature, he is compelled to worship this God, to exalt in this God, to give thanks to this God. What is the nature of God? Well, we've, this, this morning we thought about him as triune. He's always existed in a perfect relationship of love between Father, Son, and Spirit and brings us into that love as his adopted children. He has a saity. He's from himself. He's self-sufficient. It is in his nature then to give out of himself and not to receive. He needs nothing from you but loves freely and supplies you with everything that you ever need. 
He's immutable. He never changes because he cannot increase in his perfections or decrease in his perfections. He can improve and he cannot diminish. He's stable for you. He's impassable. He cannot suffer or be caused to suffer. And, and far from thinking that this makes God some uh, immovable rock, it means that God could not be made to care more for you than he already does. God could not be made to love you more than he already does. He is so stable in his love for you. And it couldn't rise higher because it's already at the apex. God is just and righteous. He will ensure all evil and wrongdoing are perfectly dealt with. We could go on to speak of other perfections of God, of his simplicity, of his spirituality, of his omniscience, of his omnipresence, of his omnipotence, of his love, of his goodness, of his compassion, and on and on. And those would be all causes to bring us to worship God. But consider his wonderful deeds. Consider the wonderful deeds of creation. From the macro level in space to the micro level of biology. Consider the wonderful deeds of providence. God silently guiding all things towards his intended ends and purposes. I think of the story, I mean, just, you think of Bible stories, and I think of, like, the one king who wants to, you know, not get killed, and so he disguises himself, and yet it says, an archer drew at random, and, and let his bow loose, and, and the arrow found its way in between the, the, the break in his armor, and killed him nevertheless, and God's providence at work, or the book of Esther doesn't even name God, and yet proves and shows that this is how God's providence works, silent, but effective, God working his will, it's almost like the absence of his name shouts that he is at work in working all these details. You think of God's miraculous deeds. Not only his deeds of providence, but his miraculous deeds. I mean, so many less. The conception of Sarah, the parting of the Red Sea, the description of the destruction of Jericho, the healing of the blind, lame, the resurrection of the dead, the miracle of the virgin conception, of the resurrection of Christ, the miracle of regeneration in our lives personally and in other people's lives. Wonderful deeds. Consider the wonderful deeds of God in your personal story. Maybe sparing you from a near-death experience, causing regeneration in your heart. Maybe it was God taking you from being so enslaved to a particular sin, habit, or pattern, or way of thinking, and progressively releasing you from that, and making you find yourself as you look back now and saying, I'm so free of that. It's been so long since that has been dominant in my life, that God has truly changed me in that way. And you go, oh, God's wonderful deeds in my life. Maybe it's a way he's specifically answered a prayer for you. Whatever it is, there are so many ways in the person of God and in the works of God to entice us to worship him. And I'm just trying to give you a flavor of that. So let us resolve to be people that praise God no matter what, no matter the circumstances, why? Because he's worthy regardless of our circumstances. Job learns not the why question of his suffering, but God gives him more of himself in his suffering. And, and Job says, I had heard with you from the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen. He comes to a greater disclosure of God. And so we praise. We praise God because he is worthy. And we have to praise him. When we learn about him, we think about him, it just, it just has to come out of us. C.S. Lewis has a, a, a well-known quote uh, on the nature of our praise that I think is helpful for this point. He says this, quote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. 
It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. It, to, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people, because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. He says, the Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Sounds like John Piper, because John Piper got it from C.S. Lewis and also from Jonathan Edwards <laughs> and also from back, 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 back to Paul. You know, it's like, and, and so that's the, that's the point that God commands us to, uh, or he, he sets up his glory as the highest good and therefore our delight in him is what glorifies him. And so I love this. <laughs> yes, it is true. We, we want to tell others of things we find to be delightful and good. And so when we enjoy God, naturally the expression is praise, is worship. And so David teaches us much about worship and praise as he resolves to praise God. And that's what we need to stay sane in a sinful world is a resolve, a commitment to praise God, to worship God regardless of circumstances because God is worthy, because he is worthy. So number one, resolve to praise God. Number two, recount the perfections of God. This is similar, but David really takes his own advice and, uh, and, and he applies what he's, what he's been telling us as he recounts the perfections of God in verses three to 12. He highlights two main perfections of God. In verses three to eight, we might say that he expresses that God is the sovereign judge of the wicked. In verses 9 to 12, God is the stronghold for the weak. Well, let's look at verses 3, and eight, three to 8 first. He, he first speaks of a personal experience he's had of God's deliverance from his enemies in verses 3 to 6. And then he kind of universalizes that into the whole world and how God will bring justice upon all the nations and all the world and all the peoples in verses 7 and 8. He brings this decisive judgment for uh, David first. Verse three, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. And so David describes some experience that he had where his enemies were at him and yet God through his presence caused them to fail. They were, they perished. They stumbled is the imagery. And, and verse four then says, you, you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. David's just cause, I mean, we don't know specifically in this context, but we know in a general way, David is the royal king. He's the, he's the Davidic ruler. And so to be against the Davidic ruler is to be against God. And so his just cause is maintained because he is the appointed, the anointed of Yahweh. He has a unique role in that. And so God has recognized that and pr provided and protected David and he, he, he points and acknowledges that God is on the throne and therefore he is going to give out his righteous judgment. And he did that for David. He goes on in verse five, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. We've actually seen how uh, a lot of these early psalms allude back to Psalm 1 and 2 because those are like the introductory psalms. This 
idea of these cities being rooted out, it kind of contrasts with that idea of a, a tree firmly planted in chapter 1. It has roots that, that go down, and, and yet God, for the wicked, pulls up their cities and pulls them out by the roots. He gets all of them. And that's this idea. He is, he's blotted out their names, their, their, their memory is gone, and their cities have been so uh, dealt with. It's not like you, you go to pull some weeds and you just get the top, and you're like, oh, this is going to come back again. And it, he gets it all the way down, all the roots, everything, they're gone, is the idea. He's made them to be forgotten. Came across as a good quote from James Hamilton. He said this about them being forgotten. It's often humans refuse to submit to Yahweh because they are seeking a name for themselves. And he references the Tower of Babel. Absalom's re reputation was central to his rebellion against David in 2 Samuel 15. And then he says, the Bible tells the truth that the quickest way to be forgotten, to have one's name blotted out forever, one's memory perish, is to rebel against the Lord and his anointed. And so that's what David's enemies have done, and therefore they've experienced the consequences of being blotted out. Remember the end of the book of Ruth? You have this guy who um, has, the, has the right to uh, marry Ruth, this widow, and to perpetuate her husband's line, according to Deuteronomy, and yet he uh, doesn't want to when he realizes it's going to jeopardize his family line, and really it's going to jeopardize his name, his legacy. And so then Boaz comes in, and he is willing to do that. And so he marries her to raise up the name of uh, uh, Ruth's uh, former husband. So really, it's, it's like Boaz is, is becoming a no-name to make the name of Ruth's former husband uh, have uh, descendants. And, and yet, it's Boaz that's remembered, and this guy who refuses to do that, that's forgotten. In fact, the, the term that's used for this man uh, who has no name is, it, it really means Mr. So-and-so. It, it means Poloni Almoni. It's, it kind of sounds like an Italian sandwich. And it's like, the idea is, it's like Mr. So-and-so. It's used of cities, like uh, such and such a city. He has no name. And so the man who wanted to make a name for himself was totally forgotten. And he's, he's given no name. He's Mr. No Name in Scripture. But, the, but Boaz sacrificing his own name for the sake of Ruth we're, he's remembered forever. He's now uh, perpetuated the line of the Messiah. And so here's the, the upside-down way of God's kingdom. The first will be last, the last will be first. And David's enemies have rebelled against Yahweh's anointed, and therefore they've been forgotten, they've been blotted out. Later in the passage, we'll learn that God never forgets those who are oppressed. God never forgets his children who are weak. Though it may seem like that for the meantime. So David recounts God's uh, judgment upon those who were his enemies. Then he principalizes it out further for the future hope of God's justice on the earth. In verses 7 and 8, it says, But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Let's start with this phrase, Yahweh sits enthroned forever. This is a way to speak about God's rule, his sovereignty. He, he, he has a throne, a king has a throne, and he's seated, means he's, he's exercising his rule. This is reiterated lots of places. Psalm 115, 19 speaks of God's universal reign over all. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. 
Psalm 29, verse 10 says, Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. That means Noah's flood. It means God was king. He was ruling the universe when Noah's flood happened. I mean, and why would that be significant? Well, if, if an incredible natural disaster comes upon a portion of our world, people may ask, where was God, right? Here's a, here's a natural disaster, so to speak, uh, that happens on the entire globe. And yet, here's the psalmist saying, God is king. God was on the throne. God was behind that. And then he says, Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. He's always on the throne. Now, of course, to be sure, there's the universal reign of God, but there's a particular sense in which God has this mediatorial reign where he's going to bring his Messiah to come again and rule on this earth. Uh, and yet, we know as we await that time, we are still acknowledging that God is always king. He's always ruling over all things. And because of that, he will judge the world with righteousness. I mean, this sounds almost the same as Acts 17, 30 to 31, when Paul was speaking to the Gentiles in, in Athens. He said this to them, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so God has appointed a day of judgment. What's interesting about that passage is after Paul says that, that God has assured that he's going to judge the world on a particular day because, and do it through a particular man, and he's given evidence by raising him from the dead. He says they mocked him then after that because he spoke about the resurrection of the dead. Oh, Paul, come on. We have, I mean, we were listening to you, but resurrection, come on. We, I mean, we not only get mocked for that, but we get mocked for a coming judgment. God's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to send people to hell. Yes. I mean, that's, that's what David is saying. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. And it gives David great encouragement, both in his life personally, as he, and then he looks forward to this. It gives him great stability in an insane world. I mean, you have, maybe have disappointment over political leadership, and yet God will bring perfect justice in his timing. You may have disappointment of those in personal relationships, ways you've been wronged, and yet God will bring perfect justice. And David now recounts not only the justice of God and the wicked, but the stronghold, that he is the stronghold for the weak. Verse 9 to 12. He says in verse 9, Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. Stronghold is like a high point. It's, it's like get, it, get to high ground, get to the advantage, out of reach of the enemy, or it could be a high-walled fortress or tower of some sort. And just think, I mean, this isn't like God takes you out of the situation necessarily, and it's good to pray that, uh, but here the context is he becomes a stronghold in the war. Like the battle is still raging, but God is a protection. He is a place of safety. It says he is a stronghold in times of of trouble, in times of trouble. Have you found yourself in times of trouble? Are you presently in times of trouble? A small little phrase that encapsulates so much human experience. Times of trouble. Verse 10 is a good word for those in that situation. It says, those who know your name put their trust in you. What a good word in times of trouble. 
those who know your name, put their trust in you. That's the verse that just stuck out to me. Just neon lights in this passage in the middle. It's like, oh, so good. So good. The more you know about God, the more you will trust him. This is this interesting phrase in Daniel eleven thirty two. 32. It says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Those who know their God will stand firm. What a good word for us today. Those who know their God will stand firm and take action. It can feel like God has abandoned his people in times of trouble. Oh God, where are you? Do you care? And yet, he's a stronghold. And those who truly know him know that far from being distant, far from not loving them, he has proven his love once and for all in the sacrifice of his son, giving his only son. And so how will he not also graciously with him provide for us everything that we need? If you're here and don't know Christ, the savior of your sins and treasure of your soul, take heart. What the text says, God will not forsake those who seek him. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Put your trust in him. He doesn't forsake those who seek him. He doesn't turn away. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Come to me. Seek the Lord while he is near. Call upon his name while he may be found. For the believer, what a great encouragement that he does not forsake those who seek him. And certainly, we, you've walked with the Lord for a long time. You, you've proved that. You, you've proved the Lord in that. And David then goes on, after speaking about his trust in the Lord, to speak about his praise of the Lord and, and really preaching the Lord. Verse 11, he says, Sing praises to Yahweh, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. In other words, we'll put it this way. Psalm the name of Yahweh and preach the name of Yahweh. That's this word, sing. It means psalm. Psalm God. Praise him. Proclaim the name of Yahweh. We do this corporately, right? We sing out together praises about God, and then we hear God proclaimed through the word. And of course, we do this in our own lives as well. I love this. Sing praise, tell among the peoples. We tell among the peoples his deeds. I mean, they're shorthand for the gospel. The gospel is news. It is news of what God has done. It is not you do this to be pleasing to God. It is God has done this to make you pleasing in his sight. Tell forth the deeds of the Lord. You know, let me just say as a practical point, this just came to my mind. I found in times of like discouragement or just like half-heartedness, if I can just get out and talk to somebody, anyone, random person, someone I know about the gospel who doesn't know Christ and just like share the gospel with them, I'm just like, it's like puts gas in my tank. It's like, oh yeah, this is so true. And it just gets, gets you fired up, gets you pumped. It's like, yeah, share the gospel. And man, God just pours out so much encouragement. As you sing praise to the Lord and you tell out his deeds, it's like God loves to pour out such joy in your heart during those times. It's great to incorporate singing into your personal devotion time, even if you're doing it quietly, you know, uh, as, as your family sleeps or something. But just to, to sing out, sing in the car. I mean, it just brings joy to your heart to sing the praise of God and then to tell it out among other people, to express it in words. Here's another reason to praise God. Verse 12, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. 
He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He, he, he brings out a, uh, an allusion to Genesis 9, verse uh, 6, where God speaks about uh, bringing justice on those who slay innocent blood. He says, you know, those who slay the blood of man, by man shall their blood be shed. And so he, he speaks about the justice of God here in avenging those who have done wrong. The one who avenges blood, he knows. He's mindful. He's mindful of his people. And he does not forget them. He doesn't forget their cries. He hears them, he knows. He will act. Whereas God makes the enemy, makes the wicked to be blotted out and forgotten, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so David intentionally recounts the perfections of God to give him sanity in a sinful world. Is God your refuge? Your stronghold? Is he your trust? For many of you, yes, he is. And how sweet it is to have him as your trust. And how sweet it is to know his name and to refresh again who he is to your own heart. We must focus on the name of God, the nature of God. If those who know God's name trust him, what does this mean for our counseling of one another and our calling sinners to repentance? Well, I think a good takeaway is that as we help other people in the times of distress, times of trouble, they find themselves in, one great way to help them is to tell them about God, to point them to God. Sometimes you'll hear someone explain their, their problem with you, their struggle to you. Here's what you want to listen for. Do they mention God at all? Do they say anything about God and how he's influencing it? And one question I like to ask people is, what has God been teaching you from his word? How has God been instructing you from his word? Before I say anything about, hey, here's what you need to know, I like to say, what has God been teaching you? And sometimes they go, I haven't. Oh, yeah, and that's all they need to hear. Yeah, I haven't been thinking about it. Or you say, hey, I just want to be gracious in this, but you described all of your problems. I didn't hear you mention God at all in your problem. Like that he was in your thought. I'm not saying he wasn't, but just in the way you described it just now, God didn't come into play. Um, how has God been coming into play in this? And just help them in that way to get God back in their thoughts. Because David is saying, oh, when I thought about God, when I considered God, it changed everything. It made me praise. It made me joyful. That's a great help. R.C. Sproul made it, his ministry all about defending the doctrine of God. And he's like, if you get the doctrine of God right, first things, it just sets you on a trajectory of getting everything wrong. You have to start there. And so if you and I are going to grow in our trust in God, we must deepen in our knowledge of the character of God. Many of you have done studies of the attributes of God to great benefit. If you haven't done that, oh, so helpful. So many great resources to do that, by the way. Um, but what a great study to remind ourselves. I mean, that's what all of the scriptures are, a, a recounting of the deeds of God. And so that's what David does. He recounts the perfections of God to himself and to us. God's judgment and then God's protection as a stronghold for his own. Finally, David concludes this psalm for finding sanity in a sinful world. And here's the final ingredient that we need is we need to request the provision of God. Request the provision of God. He has two requests and you can see them in the text. Verse 13, be gracious to me. Verse 19, arise, O Yahweh. Those are things he's asking of God. He says, be gracious in verse 13. David sees his need for God's grace again and again. 
He makes a little contrast here, if you saw it, of the gates of death in verse 13 and then the gates of the daughter of Zion in verse 14. One is the, <laughs> the, the place of, uh, of judgment or the place of not blessing, <laughs> if we could put it that way, and then the place of blessing in the other. So God, deliver me. I need your help in this particular situation. See the afflictions from those who hate me. Lift me up. And, and here, why does David want God to answer this prayer? He did this earlier in another psalm we looked at. He wants God to deliver him so he can praise God. It's like, hey God, this isn't just for me. If you deliver me, I'll turn this all back into praise. I'll make other people know. And so that's what he says in verse 14. Then I may recount all your praises that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. He knows that his life is made for praising God. And so God, if you deliver me, I'll continue to be able to fulfill the purpose for which you made me. And I'll praise and I'll rejoice. And then in his present situation, he takes comfort that as he seeks God's grace, he knows that not always, but there are times when God brings his judgment early. When God causes the plans of the wicked to fall in on themselves. And this is again an example of boomerang justice. Look at verse 15. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. I mean, just what great pictures. They dig a pit, you know, they cover it with leaves, and they're like, okay, let's, uh, let's hide now. And then, boom, they fall in. It's like, they hide the net, and they're like, okay, oh, here they come. And then, boom, they step in it, and they get taken up. And, and that's the boomerang justice. It comes upon them. It says in verse 8, 16, Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Here's the thing I want you to see, that God makes himself known in his judgment. He makes his, his character known. He reveals himself by showing his judgment on the wicked. It reveals part of his character. This is, I think, Paul's point in Romans 9, verses 22 and 23, when he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So God showcases his judgment and does it to make himself known. To who? Well, primarily to his people whom he is going to deliver that they may exalt in his deliverance. I got this interesting phrase here, Higion Selah. What is a Higion? Uh, I mean, it sounds, once again, like we're doing a little jig or something. And, but we don't really know exactly what this is. It's used in Psalm 19, though, a form of this, for meditate. So maybe like, meditate on this. But we're not positive. Selah, once again, we're not exactly sure about that. Maybe like a pause. I mean, it's possible. It means like pause and meditate. Like think about this, uh, this aspect of God's work. That's all we're going to say. All right. <laughs> uh, then verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol. He goes back to this. All the nations that forget God. If you forget God, you will be forgotten. You'll return to the grave and to hell. Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Whereas the wicked perish, those who have God as their trust will never perish nor will they be forgotten. He writes their names down, and they will never be blotted out. David is confident in God's justice of the wicked. And then he finally ends, after asking for God's grace in his situation, he then 
Ask God to arise. Verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Yahweh. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. That they are but men. And he repeats uh, nations in the psalm a lot. Verse 5, verse 15, verse 17, verse 19, verse 20. He also refers to world and peoples in verse 8. So it's very global, very all-encompassing. Here he is a call for God to do in a larger scale what he has done for David in a, in a smaller way. And there's echoes of Psalm 2 here. God terrifying the nations in his wrath. David's calling God to put the fear of God into the nations. Why? So that they'll be humbled. So that they'll know they're but men. Though they act like gods. Put the fear of God in them. Make them know their creatureliness. There's a part, uh, that is part of what, what humbles us to come to God, to see our, our need for him, that we are but creatures, that we are not God, that he is God, we are small. And so it's a great prayer to pray that, that maybe even some of these nations would, and the individuals in them would come to know God as he humbles them, as he puts the fear of God into them. Don't let them prevail. This is like, here's the summary of what 19 and 20 is saying. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's really what he's praying. He's asking God. He's longing for God to arise and make this true on the earth, all over the earth. And this is what God, God's Messiah will do. He comes to reconcile and then to reign. And his reign will bring restoration to the creation physically. It will bring righteousness on the earth as he reigns from sea to sea. It will bring rejoicing and rest for those who are a part of it. This is the hope of the believer in a, in a sinful world. They have sanity because they know though the judgment has not come yet, it is coming. And they have confidence that because of the grace of God, they're free from that judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And God will right all wrongs for those who are oppressing the the righteous. And this is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty arrows, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. This is what Messiah comes to bring. Remuneration for those who are his and retribution for his enemies. What a reminder again of the great gospel. We have the, the name of God here, the character of God, the holy God, the righteous God, who will by no means clear the guilty. And yet, this God is a gracious God. Though we are sinful, though we are among the nations who rebelled against God at one point, God is gracious to forgive sinners as they come to him and they look away from themselves and they look to the name of God. They look to the character of God and they look to the work of God 
as their only hope, namely, in particular, this side of the cross, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his perfect obedience that can be applied to sinners who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. They trust in his name. They learn about who he is, what he's done, and they place their trust in him, and they find that grace that David asked for, and they then are saved from the wrath to come, and they will enjoy his coming kingdom. You've likely heard and remember from school the order of operations, right? Maybe PEMDAS. I learned it as, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, right? Parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, right? This is the order you go through. David kind of gives us a, a kind of a, a PEMDAS here, an order of operations according to David. Know the name of God. Trust the name of God, and then praise the name of God. Know him more, and you will trust him more, and then you will praise him more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for